Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining me. I'm Tracy Harris, and this is At Home in My Head, the podcast that explores experience and meaning and their impact on individuals and the broader society. I had a guest lined up that I was excited about having on, but for now, it's on hold. They're having a hard time with events in the Middle East, and there's just too much going on for them to have a conversation. I completely understand, because these are events that touch them personally, and which they're fighting hard to help correct, and that's on top of a very demanding day-to-day existence. I reached out when I saw some of the efforts they were involved in. I'm still hopeful, and have let them know that this platform is always open whenever they have time or desire to talk. In light of the fact that now is not that time for them, you're stuck with me again for another episode. I have thoughts. What I don't have are the organizational skills to place them into anything like a cohesive narrative, but I'll do my best to coordinate them in a way that will help anyone listening understand why these thoughts are associated in my brain, which again is why I name this podcast At Home in My Head, because this is life in my head, my priorities, my thoughts, my confusion, all of it. There is no actual point that I'm trying to make with this episode. It's simply several events and bits and pieces of information that have come together for me in a way that does not sit well with me. I have an intuitive sense that there's been a social shift, and not for the better. I think it's safe to say that anyone paying attention to the world right now, who has an ounce of humanity left in them, is probably similarly concerned and ruminating on a lot of what's happening around us. I'm not saying that my take on what I observe is correct or that anyone else needs to subscribe to it. Some of you may find it resonates. Some of you may find it goes against your grain. Your experiences are your own. My experiences are my own. And all of us form intuition based on the lives we have led and the things that we've been taught and the context in which we exist and have existed. My intuition on some things may be spot on. On other things, it may be way off base. When something goes against intuition, there are two common categories that can fall into. First is the category of not enough information. Second is the category that the thing is simply wrong. And depending on how deeply I want to dive, it can be hard to say which it is. Something can seem intuitively wrong, but we learn more about it and realize that it makes sense. Sometimes, though, the more we learn, the more we see that our intuitive sense that says it's not right is well-founded. 
There's a mechanism I've observed as well for a long time. I don't know if there's a name for this or not, but if not, there should be. Person A asserts X. Person B says X is not the case because X is necessary, completely oblivious to the fact that necessary X is still X. One I keep seeing recently is about whether or not Gaza is occupied. It amounts to an open-air prison. The rebuttal is usually that it's not an occupation because air, land, and sea control, control of power, water, food, and other resources in or out of Gaza is necessary for Israeli security. They've just described an occupation. What's coming out of their mouth is it's not an occupation, but what they're describing is an occupation that they assert is necessary, but that doesn't make it not an occupation. This is not the first or only time I've seen this form of an argument. A legally recognized occupation comes with a lot of strings attached that aren't conducive to supporting what's happening right now. But the claim it's unavoidable doesn't make those legal requirements go away. And if you're the one occupying, those strings are not something you want to have to deal with. Again, when things don't add up, they're either wrong or I need more information. When further information only makes it more clear that my understanding is correct, then I have to wonder why someone is invested in saying things that don't add up. And in this case, it's an attempt to escape the legal implication of what it means to occupy a people. It works like apologetics, an attempt to retroactively justify. I want something and so I need to come up with reasons why I should have it. Sometimes I tell myself these things. Sometimes I tell others. It depends on what's needed. It's also very similar to propaganda. The point is, I'm trying to justify something without saying it out loud. In this case, what I would want is to occupy people indefinitely, maybe permanently, but not be saddled with any of the obligations or restrictions that international law places on an occupation. Recently, Donald Trump was put on trial for fraud. He was inflating his assets when he needed loans to increase the loan amounts that he could qualify for, and then devaluing them when it was tax time and he was going to have to pay tax on the value of the assets, so he wanted them to be as low as possible. I doubt this is anything unusual with wealthy people who own assets like real estate, but this is why they often avoid running for public office and instead make fat donations to politicians. Putting yourself out there for scrutiny when you're breaking laws isn't wise, and this is why relatively few super wealthy people are also famous or overtly political. They want the power, but also to avoid the scrutiny. Is the case against Trump political? Yes. Otherwise, we'd be dragging everyone else who's doing this into court, and we don't usually. If Trump had stayed out of politics, he wouldn't be facing these cases today. I would think anyone would realize this. But again, we know that running for public office opens people up to this sort of extreme public and legal scrutiny, so he knew what he was getting into. Do I think it's a plan to destroy his political campaign? No. I just think everyone knows that when you run for office or you get elected to office, especially as the U.S. president, 
the world is going to be all up in your shit. And if you have skeletons, they're going to be dragged all through the streets for everyone to see. Welcome to the world of politics, Mr. Trump. But now let's open another door and look at something else that's going on to help set up some other observations. I'm going to talk about a movie, Star Trek Into Darkness. The movie came out in 2013, so it's past a decade old now. I don't know what your thoughts are on what constitutes spoilers for movies that are not new, but there will be spoilers. I thought about time stamping it to help, but honestly, if you don't listen to this part of the intro, the rest of what I'm going to talk about is going to lack context. So if you want to see the movie and you don't want spoilers, then go watch the movie and come back to this episode once you're done, because I'll be going through pretty much the whole film. I have to assume people have not seen this movie, so for those who have, bear with me. One of the issues the film deals with is terrorism. John Harrison blows up an archive building. This sets a protocol in motion that necessitates Starfleet leadership convene in a location to plan a response. Harrison uses his knowledge of this protocol to attack the meeting and take out a good deal of Starfleet's leadership. The early insinuation is that the attack on the Archive was merely to trigger this protocol to make it easier to murder Starfleet's top brass, as the Archive itself is not a strategic target. Kirk notes this during the meeting when he says it's like blowing up a library. It appears as though Harrison has killed a bunch of innocent civilians visiting an archive so that he could then more effectively slaughter Starfleet leadership. Harrison evades capture by fleeing to Klingon territory, basically the sworn enemies of Starfleet, with which there is a tense treaty. Kirk is given command of a starship and sent out to find and kill Harrison. Spock notes this is fraught with legal and moral problems as regulations require a trial. Kirk is willing to ignore the laws, however, because Harrison is a terrorist. When Kirk is asked to go on this secret illegal mission to kill Harrison, one Admiral Marcus informs Kirk that the archive was actually not an archive, but a secret weapons development facility where Starfleet is developing what he claims are defensive weapons. The ship is actually armed with some of the latest torpedoes that have been recently developed at this facility. The chief engineer, Mr. Scott, refuses to sign on for the new weapons and allow them on board. He explains to Kirk that he doesn't know what's in them, and when he asks, he's told it's classified. Out of caution, he doesn't want them on board or fired from the ship without understanding how they might interact with the ship's other systems. Kirk fires Mr. Scott, but not before Scotty says, quote, This is clearly a military operation. Is that what we are now? Because I thought we were explorers, unquote. When Kirk finally catches up to Harrison, he decides to capture rather than kill Harrison and return him to Starfleet to stand trial. During the capture, Kirk realizes something is not right when Harrison gains the upper hand against the landing party, but then turns himself in without a struggle. Harrison is held in a cell. The Enterprise has experienced a malfunction, and during a conversation with Kirk, it becomes clear Harrison is not only aware of this, 
but knows the specific engine part that has failed, things there is no way he could guess. He also encourages Kirk to open up one of these new torpedoes, and when it's opened, Kirk finds a human being inside in a cryotube. Harrison tells Kirk that his real name is Khan, that he is genetically engineered as a superhuman, and that Admiral Marcus was blackmailing him using his crew members as hostages in order to get him to design battleships and offensive weapons. He then explains the whole plan to Kirk in a heartfelt speech where he says that Marcus, quote, used me to design weapons to help him realize his vision of a militarized Starfleet. He sent you to use those weapons to fire my torpedoes on an unsuspecting planet, and then he purposely crippled your ship in enemy space, leading to one inevitable outcome. The Klingons would come searching for whomever was responsible, and you would have no chance of escape. Marcus would finally have the war he talked about, the war he always wanted." Unquote. Kirk responds, quote, No, no, I watched you open fire on a room full of unarmed Starfleet officers. You killed them in cold blood. You are a murderer, unquote. Khan replies, quote, Marcus took my crew from me. He used my friends to control me. I tried to smuggle them to safety by concealing them in the very weapons I had designed. But I was discovered. I had no choice but to escape alone, and when I did, I had every reason to suspect that Marcus had killed every single one of the people I hold most dear. So I responded in kind. My crew is my family, Kirk. Is there anything you would not do for your family? Unquote. This is where Kirk is in that zone that I was talking about earlier. He has intuited that Harrison was a terrorist, but he had questions why an archive? He was appeased with the idea that it was to pull the top brass together to massacre them. But then he's informed by Marcus that there's more to the story, that the archive is a secret weapons development facility for defensive purposes. But Marcus said nothing about people in the torpedoes. Khan appears to know more of the story, and his narrative makes more of the pieces make sense. If the weapons are legitimately defensive... Why are they being developed in secret? Why would he be given torpedoes full of people to shoot at a planet? And how could Khan know that the ship had broken down and what was wrong with it? It reminds me of a question I had when Netanyahu was confronted with the question of why he was helping fund Hamas while simultaneously criticizing countries funding Hamas. Netanyahu said that it was to keep better tabs on Hamas for defensive purposes to improve Israel's security. I remember thinking, if it's in Israel's best interest, if it's all for the betterment of national security, then why is it being done in secret? Why isn't it open-stated policy? Why not explain that helping to fund Hamas is good for Israel and do it in the light of day instead of in the shadows? Why condemn others that are doing what you're participating in? In fact, anytime someone is doing something in secret, and after it's exposed, they claim it was just a really mundane action for some good and noble reason, it's always a huge question as to why it was hidden. In the archive situation, Starfleet already arms its vessels with defensive weapons, so it's not a secret that they develop defensive weapons. Why would this be hidden if it's all on the up and up and good for universal security? During the meeting with the top brass, when asked, why an archive? 
why not be open and honest? Why let people go on thinking that Harrison had killed a bunch of people at a library when in fact he had blown up a weapons development operation, which is a far more strategically justified target than a library? As Kirk begins to get more information from Khan, he not only begins to question his initial intuition, but he starts mistrusting the information he's been given by Admiral Marcus. The person in the torpedo is explained by Khan's narrative, but it's totally left out of what he's been told by Marcus. The more he engages with Khan, the more he realizes he's being manipulated by Starfleet leadership and that the explorer narrative is crumbling as the warmongering narrative is gaining strength and credibility. Suddenly, a terrorist attacking a library full of civilians and assassinating peaceful explorers is becoming a man trying to help humanity avoid a massive intergalactic war with the Klingons, defending himself and his family by destroying a weapons development arm of an ever more militarized organization hiding behind a benign facade of peaceful research and exploration. The saying that, quote, one person's terrorist is another person's freedom fighter, unquote, is teased in the interaction between Kirk and Khan. Terrorism is like free speech. It's a loaded term that is often used for propaganda. Just as there's no absolute free speech, only those with platforms and megaphones, the real question is, who deserves these platforms? It's about allocating limited resources. For instance, deciding whose lecture takes precedent in a university auditorium. We're constantly choosing who gets heard and who doesn't. It's not just about freedom of speech. It's about prioritizing whether to amplify a lecture on climate change or one by a white supremacist. Ultimately, it's up to us as members of the public to determine what's amplified and what's suppressed. Terrorism seems to work the same way. There is violence, and then there are the causes and the types of violence that people are comfortable supporting. It's not always as easy as who shot first, as Khan makes clear. And here is where I might go against some people's grains. Maybe for you, who shot first is the metric. One and done. But I think for a lot of people, it's not that easy. For the rest of us, we have to ask, is blowing up a weapons facility in an effort to stop a large-scale devastating war the wrong thing to do? Is it terrorism? I'm not telling anyone what to think. I'm saying that the label terrorist lacks a clear definition. And in the end, if I'm going to have an opinion on violent actions, it's good to get as much information as I can to see whose narrative explains the full scope of the situation best. We can't all be experts, and I surely am not expert on just about everything. But the truth is, as the public, expert or not, we have influence on public, domestic, and foreign policy. And so opinions, as unexpert as they may be, matter. If I don't fill that void, someone else will. And that person could well be more ignorant than I am, and not even care about being informed. I can either take the time to learn from the best sources available and participate or relinquish that power and hope for the best. But the more information I have, the more I might start to feel empowered to lend a voice and influence to a cause. It could work out horribly or phenomenally well, but I have one life and I will either try to do good or do nothing. 
and in trying to do good, I could do harm. But should I let that stop me from doing anything at all, especially in a situation where public opinion is shaping public policy? Amplify those voices who are expert, if nothing else. Make that your opinion that the most impacted, most experienced be amplified. Who is a terrorist depends on who you ask. But most definitions include criminal acts that promote violence or harm to civilians in order to inspire fear in a population or to reach some sort of political goal. This means that if you have the ability to write laws, you have a big advantage already to outlaw the sorts of violence you condone or condemn, since terrorists will use violence that is, by definition, criminal. If you are in a position to define what constitutes a combatant or a military action, you have even more of an advantage as you can declare parts of your society as civilian and keep them off limits to attack, even if they're integral to perpetuating violence or even maintaining your military. And what is a political goal? In the U.S., we politicize all sorts of things from skin color to gender to class to health care to housing to food to art and fashion what isn't politicized? It only needs a church somewhere to oppose it to make it a matter that is instantly a political issue. So what am I getting at? I've done a few episodes that mention the Pinkertons. Whenever workers would go on strike, the Pinkertons would be hired by companies to ride in, kill some people, burn down some houses, and force everyone back into dangerous low-wage working conditions. It was illegal, it was violent, it was perpetuated against private citizens, members of the public, and it was political. It was fueled by things like classism, protest rights, workers' rights. The Pinkertons, in my view, should fit the definition of terrorists. But let's fast forward. When I was a kid, if you got sick, you went to a doctor and you paid a bill. Later, two things happened. Insurance companies stepped in to cover medical costs, and medical costs increased until everyone had to buy insurance because nobody could afford straight-up paying medical bills anymore. After that, three things happened. Medical insurance became unaffordable and also unavailable to people who needed it most. Companies started offering insurance plans as a benefit to employees so that some workers gained access and lots of people were left to struggle without access to health care because they couldn't get a job with a health insurance benefit. Today, if you lose your job, you're offered something called COBRA. COBRA means you can keep your medical insurance for a time, but you'll pay the premiums yourself. Premiums people can't afford, which is why many of us seek employment with medical benefits. So over time in the U.S., employers and insurance companies have created or at least found a way to leverage a health care affordability crisis. People are terrified to exist without medical benefits because chronic or catastrophic illness can bankrupt a person or a family. A lot of citizens report avoiding seeing a medical provider because they hope their condition will clear up and they won't incur doctor or hospital costs. This results in people presenting with later stage conditions that can be harder or more expensive to treat when they don't clear up on their own. Some may wait to the point that they die from a lack of early treatment. By using legislation to tie health care access to employment, we have created a legal framework that operates like the Pinkertons. Go to work for an employer who will grant you somewhat affordable health care access or take your chances on your own and hope you don't die. 
people who have disability, who find it difficult to work, and who can't afford an official diagnosis, or who have a diagnosis that isn't listed as sufficient to draw disability, are shit out of luck. Not only do they need to find a way to make money to stay housed and eat, but they don't have affordable access to health care. We do have the ACA exchange that many politicians oppose and would dismantle given an opportunity. But in the end, who is served by keeping citizens from affordable, accessible health care? By making them take jobs with corporate employers to avoid illness and death. We have weaponized health care in order to force people back to work. This is something different people will see differently. But in both cases, people are threatened with physical harm or death, whether from a bullet to the head or inaccessible medical treatment, if they don't get back to work. But insurance companies and employers are working within the laws, within the laws they helped to create, and so it's not illegal, therefore it's not terrorism, even though they're responsible for harm to civilians and using fear to political ends. Again, classism, workers' rights, and protest rights. Yes, protest rights. Under federal law, you can't be fired for trying to unionize, for picketing, or for striking. But in 1981, President Reagan fired striking air traffic controllers and put a lifetime ban on rehiring them after he declared their strike was illegal. Most recently, this month in fact, Associated Press reported that after a showdown with the United Auto Workers, Ford is reconsidering where it manufactures its vehicles. So, no, we can't fire you for striking, but we can close our plant and move to Mexico where workers' rights aren't such a problem for us. You'll lose your pay and your health care, not just you, but your whole family as well. Cute kids you got there would be a shame if something happened to them. So maybe think twice about asking for better working conditions or wage increases. And I'm not here to argue with anyone about the UAW or Ford negotiations. I'm saying that companies today still have weapons at their disposal that can be used to physically harm or even kill their employees who don't come to heal. And it's just a complex legal maze that, in the end, operates exactly like the Pinkertons. So, not terrorism because it's legal now, even though there are an estimated tens of thousands of citizens who die each year due to issues directly tied to health care costs. But workers and citizens fear the inability to access health care, and that fear is being utilized by corporations to work with politicians to pass laws that keep us tied to employment if we want access to not being sick and not dying. This also reminds me of the situation in Gaza. Some people are calling it genocide, and they point not only to the tens of thousands of civilians and children killed by munitions, but also to those who are slowly dying of starvation or dying from inadequate medical care since hospitals are no longer functioning. Whether you agree it's genocide or not, the point I'm making is that it's not just deaths at gunpoint or from a bomb blast that would constitute that. In the episode on genocide, I read from the law itself, and you may recall that it described, quote, creating conditions of life that are intended to cause the physical destruction of the group in whole or in part, unquote. During the Holocaust, many people died from starvation and unsanitary conditions. Those deaths still counted. Denying people access to medical care harms and kills people. 
just as surely as a well-aimed bullet to the head. Weaponizing our economy is something the U.S. excels at. And we'll get back to this later because a big question I have is how we decide what are and are not legitimate military targets. According to the Geneva Convention, quote, Insofar as objects are concerned, military objects are limited to those objects which by their nature, location, purpose, or use make an effective contribution to military action and whose total or partial destruction, capture, or neutralization in the circumstances ruling at the time offers a definite military advantage. Unquote. That's pretty open-ended. I'm going to read here as well from the wiki article on, quote, legitimate military target, unquote, where it states the following, quote, any attack must be justified by military necessity. An attack or action must be intended to help in the military defeat of the enemy. It must be an attack on a military objective and the harm caused to protected civilians or civilian property must be proportional and not excessive in relation to the concrete and direct military advantage anticipated. Some targets are clearly legitimate, including all military personnel directly engaging in hostilities on behalf of a belligerent party who are not capable of performing combat duties or are not members of a neutral country. Some civilian infrastructure, such as rail tracks, roads, ports, airports, and telecommunications used by the military for communications or transporting assets, are all considered to be legitimate military targets. And here's the part that has been nagging at me quite a lot lately. It states, The legal situation becomes more nuanced and ambiguous if the harm to civilians or civilian property is excessive in relation to the concrete and direct military advantage anticipated. During World War II, there was a song called A Thingamabob, which contains the lines, And it's the girl that makes the thing that holds the oil that oils the ring that works the thingamabob that's going to win the war. Whether such a girl is a legitimate target is an area that probably has to be decided on a case-by-case basis. However, Protocol 1 suggests that if it's not clear, then the parties to the conflict should err on the side of caution, as Article 52 states, In case of doubt, whether an object is normally dedicated to civilian purposes, such as a place of worship, a house, or other dwelling, or a school is being used to make an effective contribution to military action, it shall be presumed to not be so used. And this is where the Starfleet Archive comes in. It poses as an archive, but in reality, it's a weapons manufacturing plant. Clearly, the writers intended this to be a plot twist. Khan goes from straight-up terrorists killing civilians in a library to an almost heroic figure saving humanity from an intergalactic war that will surely result in untold deaths and mass destruction, all while attempting to save his crew who are being held hostage and threatened with death. This has so many implications to what we're seeing right now in Gaza, from claims of Hamas hiding behind every door of every university, school, hospital, apartment building, mosque, church, even among refugees embedded with the UN workers and journalists, to the US sending money and arms to fund this situation. Here again, we see the US weaponized economy. People in the US who oppose the events unfolding in Gaza are making calls for a permanent ceasefire. 
They're frustrated that almost the entire U.S. government is dedicated to sending arms and money to Israel to perpetuate this effort. Biden's spokespeople have been asked point-blank in press briefings why they won't threaten to shut off arms and funding to Israel to make them comply with international law. The clear message here is that without money and arms, the war effort would cease. We are seeing that as well in Ukraine, where there's fear being expressed of U.S. funding drying up. Again, the implication being that without money and arms, the Ukraine will no longer be able to fight. And what is a legitimate military target? Going back to the Geneva Conventions section I read earlier, those objects which by their nature, location, purpose, or use make an effective contribution to military action and whose total or partial destruction, capture, or neutralization in the circumstances ruling at the time offers a definite military advantage. Unquote. And if money and arms are key contributors to military action, and it appears they are, then destroying, capturing, or neutralizing those things would offer a definite military advantage. I have talked in other episodes about coltan mining in the Congo as a great example of other ways in which we weaponize our economy. And honestly, this is bigger than just the U.S. I think the U.S. is just more overt and shameless a lot of times, but coltan is used in the production of devices like cell phones, which are a huge and profitable industry. Coltan mines are exploitative. People who work in them are impoverished and they often employ children. The working conditions are dangerous and can be lethal, and this is how we reward the workers who provide the world with cell phones, with unnecessary poverty and unnecessary risk to their lives, with child exploitation. Somewhere, a corporation gets rich. Somewhere, a CEO buys a yacht. And what do you and I get? We get a cell phone and we have to pay another wealthy CEO to even use it. I could stop using my cell phone, but it wouldn't stop this because it's systemic and it's global. We could all give up our cell phones and stop using them, but realistically, that isn't going to happen. And that's what cell phone companies are banking on. We're trapped in a system where economy is weaponized, we are actually forced to rely on products that kill people in another part of the world for our convenience and for our economy. We kill and they die at the hands of our weaponized lethal economy. We also have some bad things going on in Sudan right now that I have to read up on more to understand better, but the bodies are piling up there as well in another post-colonial nation. And I know some folks object to the use of post-colonial because it implies that this process of destruction is an after effect rather than an ongoing problem that is still happening as a result of that initial colonization. If you weaponize your economy and use it to impoverish another nation, and ruin the people's access to resources, make sweetheart deals with their leadership, take their resources away, charge them to use them, then force them to work for slave wages in dangerous and deadly conditions, and let them die if they refuse, or because they can't afford medical care, is your economy a weapon? Is it a legitimate target? Is it a vehicle of terrorism? A government that does this has it opened up its commercial sector, banking trade Wall Street to targeted attack. And I'm not telling you it has or has not. To quote from just a little earlier, 
And it's the girl that makes the thing, that holds the oil, that oils the ring, that works the thing Amababi, that's going to win the war. Whether such a girl is a legitimate target is an area that probably has to be decided on a case-by-case basis. It seems like if you're the one weaponizing the economy and deriving the benefit at the expense of other people elsewhere in the world without platforms and power, you see this case as not a legitimate target. But when you see your family and friends suffering and dying at the hands of the weaponized economy, when you see people laughing and enjoying their cell phones while your children struggle and die in a coltan mine because these same people do not know or care if labor laws exist or are enforced to get them their cell phones, you probably see this case as more solidly a legitimate target of a weapon used to terrorize, oppress, and even murder your people. Whether that bank or that seat of trade is a legitimate target can depend quite a bit on where you're standing in the global hierarchy. I have a lot more to say about this, but even as I'm recording this, I can see the script has gone way long, so I will unfortunately have to reserve some of what I'd like to say for another episode. The irony is that what I'm leaving out was actually the idea I started with when I began scripting. Basically, our private sector has merged with the FBI and is engaging in COINTELPRO-styled operations and citizen monitoring and harassment. If you're curious and would like a teaser, Google, quote, Domestic Security Alliance Council, unquote, to see more of how our lines between public and private are crisscrossing all over the place. Our private sector, our commercial sector, is embedded and entrenched with our military operations, mass global damage, and even abuse of citizens' rights right here at home. This is Wall Street. I haven't heard it in a while, but when I was younger, it was pretty common to hear people say that capitalism is our economic model and democracy or democratic republic or whatever you want to label it is our system of government. But what I see is a merger where oligarchs and corporations have tentacles throughout the government in a way that makes it part of our public government system, not separate. They have significant political power and influence over public policy, but they're outside of our electoral system and therefore not accountable to the citizenry. But for this current episode, talking about the global damage that we do with our weaponized economy to lives, to health, to the environment, which is pretty vast, it's not limited to foreign exercise. It can be seen domestically as well, and that's the hardest pill to swallow. We aren't even driving all of this destruction, defending a utopia in the U.S. We're defending a dystopia. I've mentioned before we have 650,000 unhoused people in this country and between 16 to 17 million vacant homes. We don't build housing to house people. We build it for profit. And we'd rather let these houses sit vacant than let someone live in them if they can't afford to rent or buy them. Food service industries routinely throw away food that could be eaten. Our economic philosophy is, if a person can't afford food, let them starve. Adam Conover did a really good episode recently on what happens to returned goods at Amazon. Spoiler, they aren't resold or donated to people who could use them. While I was watching news about Gaza, which has pretty well consumed my life recently, 
along with documentaries and anything else I can get my hands on, I started to see another story developing on the periphery about piracy in the Red Sea. I honestly didn't pay a lot of attention to it. I just thought, oh, pirates, kind of how we hear about the pirates in Somalia now and then. So it really didn't get on my radar until I saw the U.S. was trying to create and head up an international naval coalition called Prosperity Guardian to defend private shipping vessels in the area from a group they were calling the Houthis. It's not like I've never seen modern piracy in the news before, but when I saw a U.S. call for international military naval warships to come together to protect shipping lanes against an uptick in piracy that just happened to coincide with U.S. involvement in Israel and Gaza, I wondered if the two were connected somehow. What had happened to make things come to a boil in the Red Sea? The Houthi, or Ansar Allah, the helpers of God, are a militant Islamic group in Yemen. They sometimes share goals with Iran and partner with them on projects. But neither group controls the other. This is important because it's an area where Western and Middle Eastern sources are not aligned. People in the region push back on the U.S. labeling of that relationship as Iranian-backed, as though Ansar Allah are a front for Iran. I have heard several sources now within different areas of the Middle East describe this as more of two groups who share a mutual respect and who sometimes share common goals. They work together when it benefits them and otherwise pursue their own agendas. From what I've seen of Ansar Allah's history, they took issue with the government of Yemen, seeing it as an illegitimate proxy for foreign powers. Conflict in the region resulted in Ansar Allah mainly controlling the northeast part of the country, which includes the Red Sea coast. Whether or not Ansar Allah are terrorists or freedom fighters depends on who you ask. I recently heard they were joined by Yemen's official military, but honestly, if you spent an hour looking into that, you'd know more than I do right now. I personally would not want to live under their rule, just to be clear. It would be like living under any other Islamic regime. But currently, they're experiencing both celebrity and vilification, depending on who you ask about them and their actions, and we'll get into that in a minute. I want to briefly note here something I heard recently that I really like. Someone was talking about an issue and they said they had researched. And then they stopped themselves to say they didn't like the word researched for an informal discussion and they more just read up on it a bit. I like that clarification as well. I read some articles. I watched some documentaries. I made a good faith effort to try and understand as a non-expert what is going on. What was Operation Prosperity Guardian and who were these Houthi pirates and why was this suddenly yet another skirmish in the Middle East that Biden was getting us into in Yemen? What I found was that Ansar Allah wasn't engaging in what I would think of as routine piracy. I don't know what others think when they hear the word pirate, but I understand piracy to be when a group attacks and boards a vessel to steal cargo or the vessel and possibly also do violence to the crew. It's high seas crime motivated by profit. The narrative from the U.S. side was that piracy had mysteriously escalated in the Red Sea for no real reason, but it was paramount that the U.S. military protect this cargo and that other countries should join us and form a coalition to defend the property on these commercial vessels. The narrative from the Ansar Allah side and most of the Middle East voices 
was that they were protesting the assault on Gaza and standing with Gaza by blockading the Red Sea along their border, and there would be no peace for ships associated with Israel trade as long as Palestinians were being displaced and slaughtered. It was a bit like the conversation with Kirk and Khan, where Kirk doesn't fully trust Khan or think he's benevolent, but his story makes more sense because it fills gaps left by Admiral Marcus. The Ansar Allah narrative explained why this sudden escalation was happening shortly after heavy U.S. involvement in the Israeli-Gaza situation. The U.S. narrative offered no real explanation whatsoever. And a blockade is not the same as piracy. To be clear, I'm not saying Ansar Allah cannot or does not also engage in acts of piracy. I'm saying there was an escalation in hostilities in the area and only one narrative explained it. One of the first things I thought was, why are U.S. naval vessels in the Red Sea policing private commercial shipping lanes? The U.S. military is a publicly funded entity, not a private security force. They're supposed to protect national security, so why are they playing Pinkerton for billionaires and corporations? There's an article at Human Rights Watch that explains that attacking private commercial vessels is a war crime because they're not defined as legitimate military targets. I think it wasn't that long ago I would have heard this and thought no more about it, but the more I've learned about colonialism and the way it has shaped and its legacy continues to shape the world, the more I see that an economy can be weaponized. The global north, the western world, the first world, the industrialized world, whatever you want to call it, the U.S. economy exploits, impoverishes, and slaughters people around the world, domestically and abroad. We have developed our military to intervene in countries where socialism or communism were gaining traction, calling it defending democracy, when actually we were doing our level best to ensure those markets remained open to our exploitative economy. Someone on one of the threads I posted said that defending this cargo is the job of the U.S. Navy. And this bothers me. Not because they're wrong, but because they're right. Our enforcement, both at home and globally, is about protecting the property of the wealthy and maintaining the balance of power around the globe to retain our economic advantage, which in many ways translates to a racist advantage. Inconvenience us economically... And we'll slaughter you. And that's actually what we did. Ansar Allah messed with our cargo, and we retaliated by killing people in Yemen. International laws were created by powerful industrialized states. Zero Global South countries have UN veto power, for example. I personally wouldn't allow any state to have it, but here we are. The laws around warfare are also reflective of power imbalance, which is, let's just be honest, economic imbalance. When we say a nation is powerful, we mean it's wealthy. There are no impoverished nations with immense global power, and there are no wealthy nations that are unable to defend that wealth using military power, either their own or that of their allies who benefit from that wealth. This means that when you're a rebel force without a lot of financial resources, you can't really go head-to-head -head in warfare. Ansar Allah can disrupt some things, but they're not going to win in open warfare with the United States, even without a Western coalition behind it. Power and money can't be teased apart. 
It's why we use our power to protect our money. And it's why we use our money to finance our military power. These aren't two separate things. These are the same thing. Now, here I'm not talking specifically about Ansar Allah, but more broadly in a hypothetical. Imagine that you're living in a situation where a far more powerful nation is oppressing you. They have a mighty military. You do not. You have some weapons, but nothing by comparison. You're going to have to use more clever and cunning methods of gaining advantage because you simply are not going to be able to take on the oppressor's military directly. Going after the underpinnings, the ways they maintain their military, is probably not going to be off the table for you. Like that old song quoted in the wiki article, you aren't going to be able to take on the Navy nuclear submarine, but you can get to where the oil is made to allow the engines to function. The very nature of oppression, that a less empowered minoritized force is going to have to go up against a much better funded and resourced force, means those gray area targets often will be the only targets available to the under-resourced militia. And those are the very targets we're going to look at and think of as private, commercial, civilian. Even if they're heavily tied to military support, we still tend to not see them as legitimate military targets. So, looking at the Star Trek story, Archive versus Weapons Manufacture, we see a difference. Companies like Lockheed Martin or Raytheon RTX these are major U.S. defense contractors with a significant focus on weapons and military electronics manufacturing. Pro-Palestinian protesters have targeted Raytheon headquarters for peaceful demonstrations, but what if someone actually attacked it with munitions or targeted the CEO? Would we say, will Raytheon, by their nature and purpose, make an effective contribution to military action and their total or partial destruction or neutralization offers a definite military advantage? Or would we say, they aren't a legitimate target because they're civilians? Even though they're literally making weapons that absolutely contribute directly to military actions that could not take place without those weapons. If those munitions are sold and shipped to another country, is that shipping company now a legitimate target? What is the difference between a commercial shipping company delivering a bunch of munitions to a military engaged in a war effort and a bomber flying over Hiroshima with an atomic bomb in its belly? One is on a military aircraft, one is in a commercial shipping container, but they're doing the same thing. They fulfill the same role but we call one private and commercial and the other military. I can't really see how Raytheon isn't a cog in our military machine and how our military isn't supporting Raytheon through our economy. If we had a military facility building our weapons, it would be the same thing just without a profit incentive. We make a legal distinction, but really it's fulfilling the same military roles. We're just contracting them out. And if our economy feeds our military and our taxes pay Raytheon, they are on the public governmental payroll. We just don't call them government employees, but it's federal tax dollars that cover their employee paychecks and bloat their CEO's bank accounts. If you work in City Hall, the government gives you a paycheck based on tax dollars. If you work at Raytheon, the government gives your company a paycheck based on tax dollars. They take a huge chunk out and then pass what's left on to you. We could do it ourselves and not feed the corporate profit, but we don't. And since we don't, 
Since we're farming out these public functions to private companies, it seems they're just public employees labeled as private, commercial, civilian entities. Based on some pretty threadbare technicalities. They want to make huge profits off the horrors of war, manufacture weapons of war, but not be considered part of the war. They are integral, an integral part of the war. And just as an aside, should we even allow people to profit off war? It seems some of these things should not be incentivized, like worker exploitation, predatory loans, mass incarceration, and mass slaughter. But back to our hypothetical. We're the freedom fighters, and a big official military is coming for our resources. We don't have the power to place economic sanctions on them, but they can do that to us. We could maybe rally a boycott, but their platforms are so much larger that their message drowns us out. So do we go after fuel sources that keep the war machines running instead of meeting them on the battlefield? The U.S. founders handled it pretty similarly, tossing out military protocol because the objective was to win, not play by the red coat rules. And when the country oppressing us wraps that fuel in a package labeled private commercial enterprise and calls it the property of a private commercial oil company, suddenly we become criminals for attacking it. We're now attacking, quote unquote, a civilian vessel. Congratulations, we're terrorists. As an aside, I recently saw a brilliant video. A former politician was invited to have a conversation on stage with a host, and there were protesters in the audience, and instead of sitting together and raising a banner or shouting a chant in unison, they seated different areas of the audience with individuals all through the auditorium. One got up and started to shout war criminal and other ugly facts about the politician's record. It disrupted the talk, and the person kept on yelling as they were finally reached and pulled out from deep in the aisle, making it even harder to get to them. As soon as the conversation began again, another protester stood up and started to shout more allegations about their record and the blood on their hands. And again, they just kept yelling as the ushers made their way down the aisle and awkwardly escorted the protester out, shouting all the way. As soon as the conversation began again, another protester and then another, and then another, and it just seemed endless, and it was brilliant. Each of these people could make a TikTok channel and give it their takes, but none of that would be nearly as well-platformed as the way they planned and executed it. Not only did it go on for a very long time, not only did it disrupt the talk, not only was it then more interesting for sharing on social media, but their target had a much larger platform than they would ever have had with a random TikTok account where they try to call attention to U.S. global atrocities. They literally leveraged the power of the politician's platform to amplify their message against her record. And when you're on the disempowered end of the stick, you have to be more clever and more resourceful because you don't have any resources to waste and the odds are stacked against you. You have to think before you act. After reading the case against free speech, I've come to realize there's no line between public and private. Hijacking a ship hauling oil is as much a strategic target as hijacking a Navy nuclear submarine. It's not just some random attack on civilians. It's part of the war machine you're trying to topple as a rebellion or as self-defense. And hits to an economy that funds that military are also strategic. 
How else is an oppressed and impoverished community going to fight back if the only legal methods are to take on a well-funded military in open warfare? That absolutely favors the group with the power. It's a way of saying that they can use violent military force to oppress you while writing laws and ignoring laws to generate more and more wealth for themselves by exploiting you and keeping you in poverty. And the only way you can fight back is to go after huge warships, fighter jets, nuclear-armed subs? Because they're labeling everything that creates and supports those warships, fighter jets, and nuclear subs as commercial, private, and civilian? And only a criminal would attack commercial, private, civilian vessels. Anyway, back to Star Trek. Later in the story, Kirk realizes Khan is telling the truth about Marcus, but that does not translate to Kirk trusting Khan. At one point, Kirk and Khan sneak aboard the vessel of Admiral Marcus with the help of Scotty, who is on board Marcus's ship. The three men are trying to make their way to the bridge, and as Khan runs ahead, Kirk hangs back and has the following conversation with Scotty. Kirk. The minute we get to the bridge, drop him. Scotty. What? Stun him? Khan? I thought he was helping us. Kirk. I'm pretty sure we're helping him. And this is a huge point I want to lean into. Even if I am cooperating with someone, even if there is a mutual benefit to be derived, that does not erase the reality that within a mutually beneficial framework, one party can have very much the upper hand and power over the other, and exploitation can still be happening. In this situation, Khan has goals, Kirk has goals, and they are working together so that both of them can realize those goals. And yet the relationship is not one of mutual trust or even equity. At the end of this, when they eliminate Marcus, and it's Kirk and Khan standing, Kirk's goal will be to bring Khan back to stand trial. And that may not be Khan's plan at all. That part hasn't really been fleshed out yet, And so this cooperative effort has a volatile power dynamic that has not been tested, but which at this point, in theory, is recognized by all parties. Yes, they are helping each other, but Kirk understands that Khan has more information and an upper hand here, and that Khan may actually be using Kirk and Scotty to get to Marcus, where Khan will then take over entirely once Marcus is out of the way, unless Kirk works with Scotty to take over and subdue Khan preemptively. Kirk even uses the quote earlier in the film that, The enemy of my enemy is my friend. And Spock reminds him that that sort of alliance doesn't always end well. It may benefit you in the short term, but in the long term, it could result in your own demise, not only the demise of the mutual enemy. When we think of things like working together, cooperating, mutual benefit, we tend to think of equal partners working together to achieve non-conflicting, happy goals. But in fact, these types of relationships can be predatory, especially if one party has significantly more influence and power. I watched a video the other day that was talking about feudal systems. A landed lord owns a large swath of property granted to him through the magical power of heritability, or granted to him because he performed a service for someone who held the land through their own magical power of heritability. He then allows vassals to farm plots of the land, and in return they hand over a percentage of their crops as payment for the right to use the land that is magically owned by the lord. Both parties benefit in that the peasant has a place to live, housing, and food, 
but the lord who simply inherited the land really doesn't contribute he just has sufficient enforcers to control the land and he denies use of it to anyone else unless they pay him some percentage of the fruits of their labor it's entirely inequitable and the lord can reclaim that land while the vassal has no real power in that relationship the control the lord can exercise is immense compared to whatever recourse a vassal might have short of open revolt the power of the vassals individually or combined does not allow them to set the terms so when we hear a relationship is mutually beneficial that's really not the full story power matters and that's what kirk is acknowledging when scotty says he thought khan was helping them and kirk replies that he feels pretty sure that they're the ones being used and that khan is demonstrating far more power and control in the relationship and for that reason cannot fully be trusted it also puts me in mind of the florida school curriculum that sought to teach children the benefits of slavery for enslaved people they wanted to frame the labor as teaching useful skills that could be used for employment later and keep that one in mind the idea that the tasks associated with slave labor are a benefit because they help people with employment we know the slave owners were the benefactors in this relationship and that the relationship was not about mutual benefit but exploitation of one group by another painting it as some sort of mutually beneficial relationship is obviously problematic to put it mildly i've also heard some people try to push a talking point that slavery was an early type of social welfare all of this relies on ignoring the power imbalance and the reasons for the institution as well as who the actual benefactors were for most of us the idea that slavery is beneficial to the enslaved people or some sort of welfare is a grotesque and obvious attempt to divert attention from the actual dynamic but sometimes in some situations the attempts to divert attention away from the power imbalance are not as glaring to the public as something like slavery another good example is the deer hunting lobby in texas years ago there was a group called the texas deer association i just did a search to find the website and on their site it says quote the texas deer association tda is the unified voice of deer enthusiasts promoting the welfare and health of our animals and pursuing the best methods for the management of deer unquote. most folks would hear this and think it's great like feline enthusiasts or folks managing preserves where endangered species are cared for but this is not that here is the rest of the description quote, the tda is continuously working toward better wildlife conservation and habitat quality hunting and appropriate regulations for the improvement of deer herds in texas unquote. notice how quality hunting is slid in there almost as an aside but it's not an aside it's the whole enchilada when i worked with a group that managed the texas deer association they did a lot of pr about caring for deer looking after them even programs to vaccinate the herds and keep them healthy and disease free it all sounds so selfless but their actual purpose was to lobby the texas legislature to allow them to implement something called high fences which at the time were illegal because these fences were literally too high for deer to jump 
and the goal was not the safety and welfare of the herd, but to keep the herd locked onto your land so that you could sell hunts and hunters would know that you have a deer herd basically trapped on your land with big healthy animals they can kill. So this wasn't really even a hunting enthusiast group. And it wasn't a deer enthusiast group. It was a group of landowners who wanted to sell hunts on their property and wanted to guarantee hunters a kill in order to charge top dollar to allow people to come onto their property and shoot deer in what is basically a canned hunt. But the pitch, as you heard, sounds entirely like it's coming from an animal welfare group like Greenpeace. If money could not be made killing these animals, they would have zero, quote unquote, enthusiasm for them. When I googled for Texas deer hunting high fences this morning, what came up were multiple sites advertising high fence hunts on property. So not only does it appear the lobby effort worked, but it sounds like they've rebranded as a deer welfare group. And now they not only continue to sell these canned hunts, but they advertise it as a bonus to attract hunters. They're not even ashamed of it. Just to be clear, this sort of hunting, canned hunting, is not universally embraced by hunters. It's controversial even within the community, and many people who hunt consider the practice unethical. There are debates about the overall wildlife welfare of species being unable to freely move across open land, similar to the arguments we heard over the walls suggested on the U.S. southern border. In the end, a group that had what is often considered an unethical aim of trapping animals on property in order to sell passes to come and kill them succeeded in their goal by branding it as animal welfare, a benefit to the deer. Yes, they take care of the deer, but there is no question here about why. Remove the profit motive and the interest in deer welfare dries up completely. Because the real goal here is not deer welfare, that's just a byproduct consideration of the real goal of making a profit from killing them. They're kept alive so they can be hunted and killed in a confined area, and that's pitched as more than mutual benefit, almost as solely being beneficial to the deer. I heard global risk consultant Sammy Hamdi recently say that we're waging a war of narratives in Gaza. And these are some other spectacular examples of narrative wars. Everyone is looking at the same facts, but the story you tell with those facts can shape the world, can get you influence. When we look at Gaza, the narrative battle is between one story that tells us Israel has a right to defend itself, and another telling us that Israel is implementing a genocide on top of an occupation, using a narrative of self-defense to justify its actions. We are constantly waging wars of narratives, and those with money and power own the platforms. A lot of community organizing was happening on Twitter. Elon Musk bought it and has shut down much of that, driving users away. A lot of community organizing is still happening on TikTok, and the U.S. government has done all it can to threaten and malign that platform. Now Meta has been snatching up social media platforms and announcing restrictions on political speech. 
not a ban, but steps to make it just a little bit harder to organically see on your feed. You will soon be asked to proactively agree to see political content. This could have a lot of implications as we head literally farther into an election year. In fact, that part should bother everyone. A platform that feeds on engagement is going to restrict political posts in a U.S. election year only nine months away from our presidential election. I have a feeling I'll still be seeing political ads, just not the political posts. And the only people who will benefit here are those with funding to buy ads on Meta's platforms. The two viable parties. Candidates with less financial backing will be less promoted, and constituents will be shouting into the wind. Currently, if I post about the situation in Gaza on Meta's Facebook, it will get zero attention. If I post an unrelated meme and tell folks to check the comments for information on the situation that cannot be named, I get traction. It's not even subtle. I think about how, when Musk disrupted Twitter, there was nowhere else to go. It became a sort of community organizing diaspora to dozens of other platforms, all competing to challenge Twitter. And so far, in spite of Musk dismantling it and damaging it, it had such a head start that there was no clear number two competitor. Twitter technically didn't have a monopoly, but in reality, it pretty well dominated so much that it had no real competition. It never dawned on me how much of a U.S.-centric perspective this was until I heard a conversation with Yanis Varoufakis. I'm quoting from that segment, but have deleted some of the extraneous sideline conversation to provide the following brief summary. Quote, The main concern is the new Cold War that Donald Trump started against China. I was puzzled. Why would Trump start a Cold War against China? It started when he banned a telecommunications company, a Chinese one, Huawei, from functioning in the United States. And then he banned another one, ZT, and then another one, and then he introduced serious tariffs on aluminum exports. One could say, ah, that's Trump, what do you expect? But then Joe Biden gets elected, and instead of reversing this Cold War against China, he turbocharged it. He introduced a bill by which he banned all sales of advanced microchips to China. This is like saying to Beijing, we will do whatever we can to prevent you from becoming a technologically advanced country. That's economic war, a declaration of economic war. I was puzzled by that, and I was asking myself, why would they do that? If you ask American diplomats, politicians, media people, they say, oh, Taiwan, Come on, pull another one. Why is Taiwan significant? Oh, because they want to invade it. Yes, they wanted to invade it in 1950, in 1960, in 1970, when Bill Clinton was doing his utmost to induct China into the World Trade Organization and all the iPhones were being produced in Shenzhen and Shanghai. They wanted to invade Taiwan back then. They claimed it to be their own. So that can't be the reason. That didn't change. But then they tell you, but they're spying on us. What? The Americans are complaining that somebody's spying on them? The NSA is spying on all of us, every single one of us. So it can't be that. 
China is the only country that has developed this new form of capital, which I call cloud capital, which is the part of capital which, when it accumulates, bestows upon its owner the most power. It's the capital that lives inside your phone, the algorithmic AI-driven capital, which is not new. It's been happening now 10, 15 years. If you think about it, there is no British or European competitor to Google, to Facebook, to Amazon.com, to Uber, to Airbnb, to any of these platforms, none. No British, no German, no French, no Indian competitor to them. China has a bigger and better version of each one of them in China. End quote. I appreciated his expression of how economy is inextricably tied to political global dominance. They are cogs in the same machine. It's like saying a steering wheel is not a tire. It's true, but you need both to reach the goal. So when you're talking about U.S. goals and U.S. global damage, we're talking about U.S. politics and U.S. economy. Later in the talk, Varoufakis described how all this comes together to create the U.S. war machine that is arms sales and military budgets. None of this can be cleanly separated. The more money I have, the bigger corporate entities I build, the more political influence and social importance I acquire. And this translates to a government that protects and defends my interests above other interests because my success is intrinsically tied now to U.S. global power and dominance, which is overseen by our government and enforced with our military might that rushes to the Red Sea to defend my shipping containers and attacks Chinese competition to protect my commercial market interests because I am now what the government is all about protecting and defending. I have become an arm of U.S. global influence as surely as any elected representative, but I'm protected by public governmental entities while I answer to no constituency. We're told I'll be held to account by a free market, but when all of the largest platforms are there to serve my interests, and it's not in my interest for the market to be free, then I am not held to account. When the media and elected representatives are there to peddle my message and interests, it will take moving a mountain to hold me to account. There are over 753 billionaires in the U.S. right now. How many can you actually name? These people have tremendous global interest, and we don't even know who the vast majority of them are. And that is no accident. If they wanted to be famous, they'd be famous. This is what I meant about Trump and his trial woes. When you're this wealthy and this influential, you can actually operate more freely behind the scenes than in public office. You don't have to endure public scrutiny. You can be on the boards of nonprofits. You can run think tanks. You can make deals. Even getting the U.S. government to act as your best sales representative if you're doing weapons manufacture. But something I've been noticing is how this narrative of mutual benefit is being used on U.S. citizens to garner support for the 1%, corporations and billionaires. When we question the unfathomable inequity of 650,000 unhoused people in the same nation that is home to the largest number of billionaires and Fortune 500 companies in the world, we're told it's a mutually beneficial relationship. But like Kirk, I'm pretty sure we're helping them. We are the deer herd. 
except we don't even get the free medical care before we die. I know I'm late to the party, not just individually by age, but also historically. I'm not the first person to ever come to this realization, and in fact I realized it by listening to a lot of other people talking about it, but it's clear things are getting worse, and the overtness of it has made it hard to ignore. Once I saw it, even a lot of less overt things started to look more suspect to me. In other words, as a deer, once someone pointed out that high fence, I knew something wasn't right. And then, even those free vaccines to, quote, keep me healthy, unquote, began to look more ominous. Maybe this rancher doesn't really care about my welfare at all. Maybe he only cares about profit and keeping me alive serves that goal, so long as keeping me alive doesn't cost too much. Some actually will say that the fact any natural resource has monetary value is good for the resource because it means it will be cared for and protected. But this raises the question of whether it's ethical or healthy for a society to only value things tied to profit, including human lives. In the U.S., and especially in Texas, the idea of property and money over lives isn't even controversial. If you kill someone trying to steal your television, the response is, of course. This philosophy pervades U.S. policy, both foreign and domestic. The history of policing is protecting the property of the wealthy in the North and hunting down escaped slaves in the South, and not much has changed. Our prisons are disproportionately full of black citizens, and statistically most crimes are about property, not violence or citizen safety. It seems that our economy feeds our military, and our military's job is to defend our economy. And that economy, more and more, benefits fewer and fewer citizens. So, is this really about helping us? Or is this about using our tax dollars to fund a military to benefit our most wealthy citizens and corporations who also derive immense benefit from corporate and tax laws? Jeff Bezos won't eat any additional costs for ships rerouted from the Red Sea. We will. Because passing costs on to consumers is what we do in the U.S. Our tax dollars will pay money to protect the product we will spill citizen blood to protect that product. We will get the product here. Some of us won't even be able to afford the product, even things like medical supplies or accessibility products. Those who can afford it will pay for the product, pay tax on it again at the point of purchase, then pay over and above the cost of the labor and materials to make companies like Amazon a profit and keep people like Bezos billionaires. Then we'll pay even more to cover the costs associated with the longer, safer routes for moving the product around Africa or overland routes because, God forbid, it should come out of Amazon's profits or Bezos' bonuses. We're going to cover the costs for all of this from start to finish, while companies like Amazon and people like Bezos do nothing but reap rewards. We will bomb and kill people in Yemen, not because they've killed anyone, because when we started killing them, they hadn't killed anyone, but because they disrupted our economy. We weaponize our economy. I tried to find out what sorts of things were being hauled by the ships being attacked by Ansar Allah. I found an article in the Military Times that said this, quote, 
Around 55 countries have been affected by the attacks so far, either because of the ship's flags, the origin or destination of the goods on board, or the nationalities of the crew, unquote. Military Times admits that these are targeted attacks, not random opportunistic attacks. And this has been supported by other reporting. The person who said this is the military's job is probably looking at this as a disruption that keeps goods out of the hands of people, not one that keeps a few corporations and people wealthy. But I have a feeling we're helping them. What products am I willing to resort to violence for if they don't arrive? Should commerce continue as usual while my taxes contribute to devastating an entire civilization, causing civilian deaths and unimaginable suffering? There's nothing I need to buy worth this. Even as someone dependent on medication, I ask, why should I have access to health care while funding its denial to millions? If denying me medication is the only way to protest my government's actions, then so be it. Why should I have access to health care while funding its deprivation from so many other people? It was argued that the situation in Gaza is just being used as an excuse for Ansar Allah to increase activity in the Red Sea. And I suppose I'd respond by saying we should take away their excuse then. If we want to de-escalate this, and our involvement in Palestine is escalating it, isn't that what Ansar Allah is also saying? Isn't that the same narrative, that they're stepping up aggression in the region to disrupt even more because of the situation in Gaza? There's no disagreement here. The only question is whether continuing to slaughter tens of thousands of children and additionally beginning to bomb Yemen, which kills civilians and puts an impoverished population at risk, sounds like a path to de-escalation. Based on our history and behavior, the U.S. motto should be property over lives, money over lives. I was going to discuss some situations I've stumbled on recently and talk about why I don't think wealthy people and corporations are helping us, but rather using us to help themselves. But after checking my runtime against the word count, I'm going to narrow it down to one example. Maybe I can talk about more in another episode. If I had to choose one example, it would be corporate bailouts. We're told that these corporations are too big to fail. And what that means is that we've allowed them to become so powerful and forced so many people into reliance on them that we've now created a situation where citizens will suffer if this corporation goes under. But I don't remember being given any choice. We've been funneled into this over time without anyone asking us if it was what we wanted. I hear so many people ask when these bailouts happen, why can't the government just buy and run the company? But there is this weird apologetic that the government can't run a business because we'd be competing with private enterprise. I'm not sure who pulled that rule out of their ass, but the irony is that I believe it was the same person who said that the government can't do anything efficiently. If the government is too inefficient to compete, then let them compete and fail. You cannot simultaneously fear that they'll be competitive with private markets and claim that they're not as good. I would love to test that out. If private corporations were so awesome, then we wouldn't need to continually bail them out using public funds. We wouldn't continually need to defund things like education and the U.S. Post Office in order to try and force them to fail because they are competitive. They can be competitive. But these corporations, they reap all the rewards. 
and then leave us to pay to clean up their mess. It reminds me of the conversation about litter in the episode about willpower and how companies shifted to cheap disposable packaging that wasn't biodegradable and then made all that inevitable trash the public's problem to clean up. When it comes to banks, rather than a social safety net, the government shifted pensions onto corporations who pushed us from pensions to 401ks. So now a lot of people have been forced into the stock market made to tie their future security to corporate health and welfare. Our personal individual 401k investments combined with employee salaries means many people will suffer if this company goes under. So when banks behave badly and fail as a result of their irresponsible practices, we are told that we can't let them fail because their hands are in too many pies now. Yes, those executives did some really bad things and we'd love to punish them, but so many people will be harmed if they go under, so we should use public money to save them, even though they ran themselves into the ground. This means when things went their way, they reaped all the profit, but when they screwed up royally, we paid the penalties. Somehow, we are told that this is best for us, because we'd really suffer if these banks failed. I also have some severe misgivings about how we're privatizing our space program. I see a shift from hiring private contractors to work for NASA to handing public money to private companies to function as our space program. It seems that so much of our national security is being handed over to entities where one man or a handful of people who don't answer to the citizenry are being handed a whole lot of power over our systems. They used to be helping us, but more and more I get the feeling we're helping them. I know we're going long here, but I wanted to give one positive that starts with a negative. I've used Bob's Red Mill products for a long time. Bob Moore and his wife, Charlie, founded the company, and in 2010 they began a move to transfer ownership to the employees. Bob passed away recently, and now his 700 employees own the company. He was quoted as saying that profit and ownership sharing, quote, make things more fair and more benevolent, unquote. The Moors had three sons, nine grandchildren, and six great-grandchildren, but they still chose to leave the company to the workers. And I wish we would see more of this. Okay, I've gone way over long, so let me wrap with this. I want to give a shout out to the UNRWA, I recently found out that individuals can donate to UNRWA. I'm not supportive of the U.S. canceling funding to the humanitarian aid for one of the most intense man-made disasters ever to live stream. Each person has to make this call for themselves. I can't make it for you. You can't make it for me. But when I heard the minister of South Africa get up and tell the Global South to stop pushing the U.S. and U.K. and figure out how to fund UNRWA themselves, I wanted to cheer. We don't need our governments to fund UNRWA. Individuals can donate to it. I can donate to it. You can donate to it. South Africa can donate to it. And we can collectively tell our leaders who do think that starving millions of civilians to death is tolerable that they don't matter anymore that we, citizens of this earth, are a new world order. Is that a call to action? No. It's just me saying that this is what's in my head. Do whatever you want to do. I don't answer for you. You answer for you.
That's it for this episode of At Home in My Head, exploring experience and meaning in individuals and the broader society. Like and subscribe if you enjoy these talks. And in the meantime, stay safe, be well, and never stop exploring.